You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Eric the Viking. Watching it with me is John Spira, author of Video Syncratic. Hi John, how are you? Hi Rich, I'm good, thanks. This film was one that you were very keen to talk about. Uh, what's so special about this film for you? You know, it's, it, Eric the Viking really is one of those special films for me. I think there's um, people who really love film and really love cinema... It's not necessarily about how good a film is sometimes. Sometimes it's kind of how you experience the film for the first time. And um, for me, Eric Viking, I saw the day it came out. I went to the cinema that evening. And so this is 1989, so I would have been 13, I guess, 12, 13. And I just found it this really beautiful, magical film, which which was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I think I went expecting it to be kind of like Life of Brian, which I really, really loved. And I loved all of the Monty Python stuff, because, you know, when you're 12, you do love Monty Python in that kind of way. <laughs> and I kind of thought this would be like a new Monty Python film. And, you know, it's got elements of that, but it's it's such a strange film. And and, and it, it kind of, I found it quite moving. And it, it's, I mean, we'll go into kind of all of all the kind of aspects of it, but it's it's got... But the core of the film is this kind of very strange darkness, kind of melancholy. It's not like a Python film. There are those kind of comic moments in it, which which sometimes feel quite incongruous. But I just found it to be quite a magical film, and I still do. I still, when I watch it, I think the kind of the combination of of the incredible production design and the music and 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 the the, the kind of storytelling. I, I think it's it's a film that's not like anything else. And I really kind of value that. There's, I can't think of another film which, which is like Eric the Viking. So it's just, it stayed special to me. Well, as you say, it's um, sort of going there expecting a Monty Python film. And the fact it's directed by Terry Jones and the second credited on IMDb, anyway, actor is um, is John Cleese. And the, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't blame anyone for watching it expecting or at least hoping for huge similarities to the python films and i think you know having come to this this i mean this is the first time i'd watched it since probably early 90s i reckon i had it on a i'd seen it on a video and again sort of maybe the the benefit of age and and having absorbed more of that sort of watching it and there are so many similarities and yet the fact it's a a tale that could be told perhaps very differently by other people but it's ultimately a guy questioning his own sort of existence really yeah it's it's very kind of existential and it's got a lot to say and and you know it's not i love it but it's not above criticism and 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 one of the criticisms that i have of this film is that terry jones wasn't brave enough to fully let go and i really think if he had been brave enough to not cast John Cleese, John Cleese is the only, we can talk about the casting later, but, but, but John Cleese, I think is the only mistake in casting. And the reason it's a mistake is because it, it, it kind of roots it so firmly back to Monty Python. And Terry Jones has these stupid scenes in that, which, which, which kind of detract from the weird kind of mystical earnestness that, that kind of goes through the rest of the film. So like my only criticism of this film is that, he was not brave enough to step away from Monty Python fully. And I think if he had this film, I mean, I love it anyway, but it, it could have gone somewhere else. It could have been really an exceptional film. Well, I did see from the IMDb trivia that apparently Jack Lemmon was supposed to be uh, half Dan the Black and pulled out quite late on. And that's why John Cleese stepped in. 
That would have been amazing. It <laughs> would have been a very different. One of the things about this, about the kind of casting of this film, which, which kind of blows my mind, is it's it's the casting is insane. Like on paper, the casting is insane, and on screen, the casting is insane. It's a film about Vikings. It's a British film about Vikings. It's got Tim Robbins in the lead, which is a very strange choice, but it works. It's got Mickey Rooney as his dad, who's like a Viking kind of captain, which is a very odd choice, but again, it kind of works. You've got Eartha Kitt as a soothsayer, which is one of my favorite pieces of casting in, in cinema history. She's incredible in that role. But you never, I mean, on paper, that's kind of like a my Zetteling kind of role, you know? You wouldn't think it would go to her. And and in a way, I could see I could see Jack Lemmon doing a great half down the black, you know, because one thing that this film does, which a, a lot of films don't do, and I don't know the reason for it, I would love to, I mean, obviously you can't really talk to Terry Jones now, but I would love to ask him about this because it's got, he as a director seems to have so much faith in the fact that if you cast an actor, they'll be able to act. And most films don't do that. Most films cast very strictly to type. And they cast people in roles which the audience is used to seeing them in and forget that, you know, actors can act. So I think it's great. I think giving Tim Robbins this chance to play a role which is so far removed from anything else he's played. And he brings something wonderful to it, you know, and they all do. They all, I think the acting in this film, performances are fantastic. Well, as you say, you know, the amount of British actors in there that you would recognise from other things. And these are people who had either done so previously or gone on to huge things you've got sort of tim mckinnerney as sven the berserker john gordon sinclair still riding on the gregory's girl wave even uh, jim broadbent and jim carter make appearances as well and anthony share who we talked very briefly about in superman 2 funnily enough you know these are all people he seen in so many other films tv on the stage and putting them in in some cases in very minor parts but as you say trusting them to just get on with it and and do a good job and it really shows in some of them really enjoy themselves which i guess is half half the fun it does and and you know talking of kind of like theater like that's that's what theater has always had over film is that if you go and see a play especially you know somewhere good you you can kind of be quite moved by it and you can look at the program in, in the interval and be like, who is that guy? You know, who is that woman on stage? Like, I'm trying to work out who that person is. And then you see what they've been in, in cinema and you go, oh, wow, you know, this is a million miles away from how they get used in film and TV. But it just shows that they can absolutely do this. And Eric the Viking feels quite theatrical in that way. It's It's a character actor's film. It's a lot of very small roles, but those people fill those roles fantastically. And, you know, you talk about Tim McInerney. Here's a guy who has spent his whole career playing the fop. And in this film, he's a berserker, you know. <laughs> he's great. He's fantastic in it. But it goes to show as well that the scene with the fight with Half Dan's boat and they say, go on, go on, berserk. And he said, no, I'm building up to it. I'm building up to it. And, you know, the fact that he isn't just this automatic sort of lump. He's saying, well, it's almost like an actor needing his process. It's like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Foaming Absolutely. at the mouth. I mean, and again, that's that's the stuff you get. I mean, I feel to a degree that like we've lost that that in in cinema these days. That kind of character actor thing. That that thing where you have kind of a lot of smaller roles, 
but really memorable, great people playing those parts. The one thing that sort of struck me at the beginning of the film, and the film opens with flames and fighting and basically a, a village getting pillaged, um, you know, doing Vikings doing what Vikings do. And it's Tim Robbins as Eric, you know, and immediately trying to rape a woman. Yeah. And I've never heard the word rape mentioned so many times in two minutes it was he tries basically bursts into a woman's house attempts to rape her but doesn't really and the fact that she this is where what reminded me of a sort of life of brian scene almost where she's saying you haven't raped anyone before have you get it over with (laughs) it's really it's a really awkward scene now it's it's strange because like it's one of those things which um when when kind of the the kind of the morals of society kind of change certain things you know suddenly get seen in a completely different light Um, maybe 30 years ago it was acceptable to make the kind of jokes that they make in that scene but it's not now you know and it it feels uncomfortable to watch because you know like you say they use the word rape a lot and it's and it's kind of said as a as a joke it is it's uncomfortable and it's awkward but at the same time as a scene it kind of sets the film quite nicely it sets his character quite nicely but it's uh yeah no it's it's one of those things where you kind of you 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 wish that that hadn't been the case he could have uh he could have looted and pillaged without raping <laughs> but this is the point where you know even as he struggles to get his helmet off and he's messing about with his clothes in that he's trying to and this is where his you know, very and this is how it's portrayed but his sensitive side comes out it's like well can you pretend i'm raping you and he wants to be seen as being a viking which is what he is but without having to actually do the biggest unpleasantness of it and strangely as well it didn't take long to recognize that the actress was samantha bond who was obviously in a few bond films as money penny and she despite him accidentally killing her while trying to stop someone else raping her i'm saying rape lots now she sort of becomes the recurring character throughout his or his conscience as it is throughout the film reminding him of you know what he almost did and and she's the inspiration really for him trying to to go about moving viking culture away from i was going to say again there what they do to women as well as pillage (laughs) yeah i mean what's the, the the one thing that's missing i mean like i used to teach screenwriting so i'm very kind of screenwriting theory oriented I, like, I was a screenwriter when i first kind of got into the industry and the only thing missing from 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 that is that if they had established that that was eric's first ever mission it would have made sense if he's someone who because he claims he's been looting and pillaging up, up and down the coast and he claims to be you know he appears to be actually the leader his father seems quite kind of sidelined in this film so you'd think he would have dealt with that issue previously if you see what i mean it feels a bit weird that he's kind of an experienced guy who's suddenly having this kind of misgiving about the whole thing but at least i mean you know for for all the kind of for the crudeness of using rape as, as something to laugh at in that scene they do use her as a recurring character throughout the film she like you say you know she does represent his kind of his conscience and his moral compass and he also bizarrely you know he falls in love with her as well and his whole mission is to go and find her and then he he puts aside the other kind of romantic kind of involvement in the film 
quite tenderly because he really does feel that he's in love with this woman who he only knew for a short amount of time but he killed accidentally and that's just a sort of farcical element to, to end that opening scene really it was just sort of accidentally killing her while stopping someone else doing it it was just it was silly really but even after that it cuts to the the rest of the viking horde i suppose they've got a woman tied up by her hair and sort of threatening to kill her with the axe and they're all absolutely trolled while swinging this axe around and Eric and and one of a couple of the female characters start rising up against this going well why do we have to and it's again it sort of poses the question that's asked throughout the film is you know why do we have to do that and why do we have to kill people and the whole idea of of Valhalla is the place where you you go if you die in glory and the ultimate insult that they say to each other is now nah, he died of old age yeah <laughs> which is you know a very sort of what seems like quite a, a nothing insult but when you take the whole the glory of Valhalla which again is the whole aim of the film and you know throwing that at someone that must have been horrendous back in the day well it's also it's a very good it's, it's a thing that the pythons have always done which is to kind of like hold any form of kind of religious belief up for up for at least questioning if not mockery and Terry Jones does a really good job of it in this film he he shows the kind of stupidity of whatever kind of religion that the, the kind of Vikings are following at that time. But then he also counteracts it with Freddie Jones's character, who's a Christian missionary and whose lack of faith means he doesn't ever see anything that's going on around him. Like all of the fantastical stuff like dragons and, and Valhalla, like Freddie Jones can't even see them because he doesn't have enough faith to see them. So there's a lot of kind of, um, there's a lot of playing with that, but at the same time, it's tied up in a more kind of philosophical quest that the film's on, which is essentially about, you know, it's questioning violence. It's questioning a culture of violence. Yeah. And, and the vehicle that they use to, to tell the story is how they're, they're con- currently living in the age of Ragnarok, which I guess in these days everyone hears Ragnarok and thinks of the four movies. And I suppose that there is that, sort of tie in with with those i suppose i mean even what 30 odd years later where people are, are talking again albeit as part of one of these bloody expanded universe thingies where they're talking about ragnarok and valhalla and asgard and places like this um i, I guess it would have been a, a nice little turn to have seen jeff goldblum pop up bear in mind his le- latest resurgence in popularity yeah and you know that there's there's a lot of that um it's all in the mix, really. Like, I mean, the, the kind of a lot of Norse mythology is interpreted interpreted in these films in kind of weird ways. So Loki is a character in Eric the Viking, as he is in, in the Thor films, and he's an agent of mischief. You know, that's 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 kind of the same thing. And you've got Odin, and you've got Thor. I mean, Thor is in Eric the Viking. He's played by a kind of what looks like an eight year old, <laughs> but he's there. You know, and he's got his hammer. So it's all kind of there. And it's funny because, you know, you think that it's quite a rich mythology to pull from. But, but really, Thor and Eric the Viking are certainly the only kind of Norse, Norse mythology-based films I can think of mm. in, in you know, 40 years, certainly mythology-wise. 
Well, that was one thing because, as you say, it's uh, you know everything's a matter of interpretation and how. In this Eric the Viking, Loki is basically the little sort of lickspittle of the the blacksmith, and ultimately their aim is to keep war going because that's how they make money. He's not the well, it's not certainly not implied that he's the brother of Thor. He's <laughs> more likely to be his dad or his uncle or something like that. <laughs> and he's played by Anthony Sher, which is incredible. Yeah, really kind of Weasley kind of Iago kind of kind of role. Because, I mean, and again, you know, I'll always go back to Superman films, but, you know, that was exactly the character he played in that, albeit he was just a, a sort of hotel wait, uh, bellboy, but still very, looked like he was scheming, and he was certainly on the take for the for the tip for carrying the bags anyway. <laughs> this is where they have their sort of montage A-team moment, where, because Eric has convinced the, the village or the town that, you know, we should try and go to Valhalla and be the first living beings to go there and and to question, very convincing to them anyway, of of the need to end the violence and everything else. And, you know, he remembers, or he thinks he remembers seeing the sun and the sky. And, and to, to go back to this, he convinces them that, right, we need to stop all this. We need to sort of question, put the question to the gods as to why. So they build a boat and and sail off to Valhalla. But this is when we cut to Half Dan the Black, who's the sort of villain of the film. And it goes straight to him essentially being judge, jury and executioner of the local peasants. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, John Cleese doing his thing very well. I mean, like I said, I'm not... I kind of wish he weren't in it. Um, But he... It's as dark as you've ever seen him. I mean, like he's he's genuinely kind of uh, intimidating, and he, he underplays the role with kind of really to really good effect. And yeah, it's just him. I mean, like the whole scene is him just sentencing people to different forms of death for non-payment of of taxes. I mean, it's not made entirely clear who Halfdan the Black is. Like he's 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 the head of the of the blacksmiths guild or something, and he's clearly a man with a kind of a lot of power. But as you say, he also seems to be sentencing random peasants to death. He reminded me of a... I don't like making these things political, but he reminds me of a, a conservative head of benefits getting people... Oh, uh, but saying it very in a nice sort of way. Going, oh, behead him, please. <laughs> and then the gratitude of the guy where he says, oh, just cut his hand off. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean that's kind of he plays it like a like a kind of a almost like I mean kind of like a businessman, and and in that kind of the businessman as psychopath kind of thing where they they don't take any account for their decisions, basically ruining kind of lots of people's lives. It's I mean yeah, it's really good. Like he's he's really good in it. He's really he's really menacing. Um, one thing I was going to mention, and and this kind of when you mentioned about how the character of Halfdan isn't massively fleshed out to the be- at the beginning anyway. Um, now, there are several cuts of this film, there are several versions, aren't there? Because I had what I've, it was a DVD that I bought from eBay, but you said that you'd watched a, was it a version by the director's son? Yeah, okay, so there, there, are, there are three versions of the film in circulation. Hmm. The first is the theatrical cut, which is 107 minutes. And there's some murkiness around that cut in that Terry Jones claims that American audiences got a longer cut than British audiences because they'd already struck the prints. He, 
he basically, from what I understand, he was quite hands-off in the edit and he wasn't happy with the edit when he saw it. But he only had a couple of weeks to sort that out before the film came out in the UK. So he certainly, I've seen him claim that the US edit was longer than the, than the British theatrical release. So, but then he also cut the theatrical release for video. So you've got, you've got, you've, the, the three versions that are definitely out there is there's an 100, 107 minute cut which is known as the theatrical edition. And that is, as far as I know, only available on American Blu-ray, which I've got, because I love Eric. (laughs) Um, There's an 89-minute cut, which is what came out on British VHS, and I suspect is the cut on the Arrow DVD. That's the one. Although it it says it's a theatrical cut, but my feeling is that's the British theatrical cut. And then the third cut is the director's son's cut, which was something that Arrow put out about 15 years ago in that they were going to put out Eric the Viking and Terry Jones expressed to them that he wasn't very happy with it. So they said, well, why don't you do a new edit? And his son, Bill, was an editor. So he said, well, let's get, let's get Bill to edit it. It's 75 minutes, which almost doesn't qualify as a feature film. I mean, the average feature film is 90 minutes. Most run a bit longer than that. 75 minutes is very short. It's a strange one. I, I, I knew Bill a bit in the 90s. Like, like I, I, I edited a couple of films in his edit suite. He used to have, a, he used to have his own little facility in, in Soho. So I met him and kind of spoke to him a bit. He's a really nice guy. And, and, you know, I think he did work quite earnestly on this. But the problem that they were facing was that they'd lost all of the original elements for this film. So his edit is just a cut down. Like literally they were just starting with the long form cut of the film and all he's done is cut it into chunks and move some chunks around and take some chunks out. I mean, I think it's dismal, because not just because you lose a lot of the character of it, but it's technically bad. Like the sound is terrible. You can tell that one the sound changes from one shot to the next, you know, because it's been moved around and it doesn't feel like it's had a new mix and they clearly didn't have those kind of elements. But it's also, it's it's too short. And, and it's something that I rail against anyway, which is that there's a kind of, there's a certain kind of wisdom that's spoken in the film industry, which is that shorter is better, that you should concentrate on just telling the story in as kind of lean a way as possible. And... I can see that, and I can see how that works for a lot of mainstream films. But if a film was shot and written to be longer, then by just hacking bits out of it, you're making it less coherent, and you're making it less fun, and you're not kind of letting the audience indulge in the world in that way. And I think there's a this commercial imperative is just very, very damaging, and, and I can see it destroy films left, right, and centre. And the fact is that Eric the Viking was a tough sell to begin with. Like, I think it always had a very limited audience. It was never going to play to a big audience. They clearly put a lot of money in it because that money's on the screen. It's the production values are insanely epic on this film. And I think what happened was they, they just panicked that people weren't seeing it or that people wouldn't see it. And they thought people will enjoy it more if it's shorter. And that's to the detriment. I think they should have played to the audience they had. And when you look at things like Lord of the Rings. No one who likes Lord of the Rings wants to watch the theatrical cuts. 
who want to watch the four and a half hour cuts because they love that world and they love being immersed in that world. And that's kind of how I feel about Eric the Viking. I think if you like it anyway, you're quite happy for it to be a bit slower and to be, and it's a, it's a melancholy film. It's a ponderous film. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a philosophical film. So you need those shots of, of Tim Robbins looking perturbed you know, and, and, and kind of and, and kind of looking a little bit wild. You need those things. It's not just about the story because the story itself is not particularly a strong one. So in the director's son's cut, you get to the end so quickly and then the last scene is played so like the, the Asgard scene is played uh, sorry, Valhalla scene is played so quickly that you end up going, Well what was the point? You know, there's no there's no love in it. There's no investment in it. Well it's funny because I having the the dvd so that would be the the 89 minute version and even then it wasn't that long because credits and you could even see i mean i'm i'm no film i I don't know anything about editing and 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 that but even then you could change between the scenes the cuts were so blunt they just didn't flow well um and again this i suppose is the the removing of what 20 odd minutes or so from the american version and it just seemed like whole parts of it jarred. Either they didn't belong where they where they sat, or they took something out that they probably thought, well, that's not. We don't really need that bit. And it just felt like it was. And this was the the difficult part of it for me coming back is that that almost cheapened it, you know. And as you said, you can see the the value the money that they spent i mean the the scenes on high brazil which we'll come to and the you know having that was filmed in malta wasn't it yeah that's right and obviously having to to go on location there and everything there looked quite fantastic and yet you kind of jarred there really quickly and it like just takes you takes you out of it very briefly which isn't really what you want yeah it's it's really it's it's choppy you know it's there's there's a huge post-production problem with it which you don't feel when you watch the longest cut. When you watch the longest cut, it just plays like a film. But it's that same thing. It's it's like it's a certain syndrome which is kind of best seen in Alien Three, mm. which is it establishes itself really well. Like the film starts really well, and you're like, wow, these are this is a world, and these are people I'm interested in. But then because the edit is kind of incoherent, you lose touch with it. So in Alien Three all of those inmates are kind of shaven-headed. They're all bald. So just at the point where you're starting to tell them apart, you suddenly don't know who's alive and who's not alive anymore. And whole characters just disappear and it's never explained. And that's kind of a similar thing that happens with Eric the Viking. You've got so many kind of bearded Vikings who all actually, you know, do have these little moments where they're established, but they don't get to play out their own storylines because so many of them just seem to vanish. I mean, Unless you're watching very closely, John Gordon Sinclair and stuff, they just these people just disappear off the screen. Some of them just fall out of the boat. Some of them get killed in battle. But sometimes with the kind of constant re-edits, by the time you get to the 75-minute cut, you just don't know who anyone is and you don't know where anyone is or what's happened to them. Well, the, the character development side of things was, was funny in the, the fact that they had, it was a forfin as... You know, his mum and dad reminding him as he went off to battle. Was like, so you've got both axes, yes, mother, and something to sharpen them with, yes, and never let your enemy get behind. <laughs> this is like you're going off to to school or something, or football training. Oh, you got your shin pads, you got your packed lunch, and everything else. And it just kind of grounds it nicely in that real world, almost. You know, the these Vikings, yes, they're a thousand years away or whatever, but. <laughs> putting them there they're just people who've got lives and issues the rest of us 
Absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, a lot of this film, like, I'd be, there are certain people who I'd be interested to talk to this film about, like, you know, kind of like at the BFI and stuff, because in a way, this film could be looked at as kind of a, an exploration of toxic masculinity. <laughs> you know, like, what are these men trying to prove? It's all about men trying to be bigger than themselves, but actually proving that they're quite weak and pathetic. Sven the Berserker the only reason that he kind of goes berserk and that he cares about being berserk is because it's a family tradition he's supposed to uphold and he feels the kind of pressure of that. And Thorfinn Skullsplitter feels awkward at any moment where he's not killing people. Like the rest of the time, he's kind of like trying to understand what fear is and trying to deal with his parents and stuff. So there's a lot kind of going on under the under the skin of this film, I think, which could be open to interpretation, definitely. Well, it's funny when you say about the masculinity because that was a, something I actually wrote down on the part where they land in High Brazil and the first thing they do is sort of arrive and find a beautiful woman sort of lying there in the sun and they're so confused because obviously, as we discussed, you know, Vikings have a couple of real purposes when they go somewhere new. It's to all that. But um, this beautiful woman's lying there. It's like, right, get her weapons. Um, <laughs> she hasn't got any. Uh, and when she goes to them and they they just so off guard because and the whole point of high brazil is that they have to be terribly nice to each other and it is i've meant it they have to be there is a, a purpose for it but and it throws them so much again putting to them the whole concept of their existence of well you know people do get along albeit with various other issues about being nice the whole even then having to be polite when the king insists on singing is so it's funny and it's ridiculous yeah they're there for a reason they're there to get the horn resounding the idea is that if um they need to find the horn resounding on high brazil they need to find high brazil find the horn resounding blow the horn resounding which will awaken the gods and it will take them to asgard and then it will bring them home so it's really important they find this this horn so they actually have to be nice to people they can't just kind of uh, loot and pillage to find it and they're completely on the back foot because they're not used to people being nice to them and yeah i think that's really interesting and it's there's a flaw i mean the narrative is flawed it's not i've said before it's not it's not immune to criticism this film but to skip all the way ahead the ending of this film is so bizarre in such a kind of beautiful way because the film ends on a sunrise and it ends on all of these kind of violent characters being really moved with their families watching the sunrise in quite a kind of slow sequence you know, you might expect that the film would end with celebrations and clanging of swords and that kind of thing. But it ends in this really kind of contemplative moment, which you don't get in, in, in kind of that kind of film. So there is kind of something to be said that, that, that there's a, a narrative throwing through the whole thing about masculinity and about coming to terms with that and rejecting, rejecting violence. Because that seems, I mean, ultimately, any story is all about the ending. It's about the conclusion that's reached. And that one seems to be, you know, a, a kind of wholesale reject, rejection of violence. So it's, yeah, I think it's there. But Eric, he still manages to get his way with the princess. Obviously, well, get his way sounds bad in context, but um, they sleep together. But the the scene kind of, there is a callback to this where he hides from the king 
and the king bursts into the room with saying he's going to surprise them but gives them enough warning um but eric basically prances around the room naked but for the the cloak of invisibility i think which it comes back later on but the fact that he thinks he's completely invisible and to the king he is because there's the almost sort of farcical austin powers this way of well let's pretend he's not here or you know hiding cleverly his his nakedness but it doesn't it doesn't take long really for um half dan to turn up because they're following eric in order to stop them from denying his right to trade but Eric thinks he's invisible and becomes this low-key-ish, he's very mischievous, but he's very powerful, almost <laughs> warrior, because he thinks he's invisible and the guys he's fighting aren't used to anyone fighting back, so they don't know what to do. It's just hilarious. Yeah, and they're all in, in kind of... Ma- they're, they're wearing masks made of big kind of animal skulls and and Eric, thinking he's invisible just prances around their boat. I don't think he even stabs any of them. He kind of just gets really close to them and they all fall off the ship because they're so kind of confused by him. Or when they try and attack him, he just jumps out of the way and they stab each other because he thinks that he's invisible. Yeah, it's great. It's a lovely it's a lovely sequence. And then it turns into a really good, solid Saturday matinee sword fight. He's He's clearly got the kind of Errol Flynn thing going on. He's got little trampolines hidden. And he's kind of jumping all over the place. And then the rest of the guys join in. And it's a really great scene all on that boat. And, it, you know, it, I said that, like, Eric the Viking's not like any other film. But if, it, if it's like any kind of film, it's got that Saturday matinee feel. It feels like one of the kind of Harryhausen films, like Jason and the Argonauts. You know, one of the Sinbad films, something like that. Where you have a group of people on a quest. And they go in their boat. And they... They meet various problems and various kind of characters from mythology. So it does feel like that. And it's really, you know, it's a really exciting, fun watch. One thing I did like, which was just before the battle, but it was the the scene with the rowers and their sort of slave master beasting them. But it was basically he was beasting them with what you'd imagine the reverse of. And I guess this would be the humour of 30 years ago. He's from the Far East insulting western looking people by calling them horizontal eyed trouser wearers and saying <laughs> your big breasted women make me sick and <laughs> just, just with their up fish <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just so silly and luck- i mean luckily they don't play on it too much or, or at least they didn't in my cut maybe this was one of the <laughs> the extended versions i don't know but it was just such a nice little aside just to sort of say to turn things on the head a little bit you know, one thing that's really weird is that for years I would watch that film and see that. So he's that slave master is literally in one scene and he's kind of got one little moment and that's it. But he was way up in the credit list. Like he's kind of like maybe the fifth or sixth person credited in the actors on that film. And I always thought that was weird. And I found out a couple of years ago that he is, I, I can't remember his name, but he was a huge star in Japan. And basically there was Japanese funding attached to the film on the basis that this guy would be in it. <laughs> well, according to his IMDb, his name's um, Suzumo Sakini and uh, yeah. known as the Jay Leno of Japan, which uh, <laughs> is um, an odd one. But he does appear in things like Toxic Avenger. And uh, although, weirdly, Eric the Viking seems to be one of his best known roles. I think it was all kind of con- contractual obligation. 
And that's, I mean, in a way, that's very ahead of its time. I was reading an article recently about what's happening at the moment in kind of big blockbuster cinema, which is that China is is co-funding some of the biggest films, and that's why they're kind of being set there. Like, a, I think the last two Dwayne Johnson films had kind of, or what was it, The Meg? The Meg had, had big Chinese stuff. And the skyscraper had it. I think Transformers did as well. Yeah, and Star Wars, they put Donnie Yen in, in, in Rogue One in a kind of slightly incongruous role, it felt. But that was because, you know, it was going to be, it, it was, they wanted it to play properly in the Far East. So, yeah, it's uh, maybe a little ahead of its time in that way. It didn't, <laughs> didn't stop them sticking Matt Damon in that film about the Great Wall. But yeah. That, that's not an H film, let's not talk about it. <laughs> we find then that, um, after the or as the battle kind of ceases uh, that loki has been working undercover with half dan because he'd previously gone to see him and offering his, his little information and this is where he and katel blacksmith borrow uh, or they they take the the, the horn was it the mouthpiece for the yeah. horn, don't they and, and try and get rid of it but because loki stabs one of the vikings who's going to stop them and this causes blood to be spilled on High Brazil, which is the whole reason why everyone's so nice. High Brazil immediately starts sinking. And you've got the king's fake news-ish proper <laughs> pronouncing, High Brazil is not sinking. You know, they're all panic mongers. It's all fear. No, no, nothing's going Nothing. Everything's perfectly fine. Do not adjust your sets. What some of you must be thinking. The day has come, we're all going to go down, etc., etc. But let's get away from the fantasy and look at the fact. We are do seem to get that, you know, actors can act. So I think it's great. I think giving Tim Robbins this chance to play. Stick to the facts. The threat of total destruction has kept the peace here in High Brazil for 1,000 years. So whatever else is happening, you can rest assured High Brazil is not sinking. And he says that while the water is literally rising up above his neck until he drowns. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, like, that's like, you know, I mean, that's what the Pythons did so well anyway. But that's like a moment of, I mean, that's climate change, isn't it? That's, there's that piece of art somewhere. I can't remember where it is. And it's called Politicians Debating Climate Change. And it's kind of on the beach. And it's a bunch of kind of, it's like statues of politicians arguing. And then whenever the tide comes in, you can't see them anymore. <laughs> you know, so every day they kind of re-drown. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, that's that's like Terry Jones skewering politics. You know, literally the guy's drowning. And he's saying to everyone around him, don't worry, we're not going to drown. 30 years time, and yet that bit seems to have held up as well as any other bit of news or any current affairs. It seems to be very uh, apt for the, the current climate. So, well, that's what, I mean, that's what those guys did. That's what they were so good at. They were good at seeing the truth in the telling truth to power, isn't it? It's um, that it does all that changes is the people, you know, and kind of the situations. But essentially, you've just got people who are happy to lie while other people die. Well, as they uh, manage to recover the mouthpiece for the horn, uh, Eric tries miserably to, to blow the first note. The princess manages to do it, which leads to storms and the whole them getting caught on the edge of the waterfall or the, the edge of the world. And, uh, and you've got the, the religious, is the converter, who's saying, oh, no, the earth's, the earth's not flat. You know, it's <laughs> very matter-of-factly, hey, it's not the edge of the world. It's, and that sequence, I mean, that's when i remember the first time i saw the film it's that sequence and the bit seeing a viking ship fly off the edge of the world and just 
fall. It's such a kind of beautiful kind of slow sequence of, of the Viking ship just falling off the edge of the world, just falling through the stars until it lands outside Asgard. So, you know, it lands in, in essentially the kind of Viking heaven. And that's kind of the sequence I think of the most when I think of this film, because it's, it's, it's really magical and it's really, it's got these production values that you, you just don't see anymore. I mean, like they built that ship, they built a whole Viking ship for this film. You know, it's, it's practical, it's real. They built this massive ship and they actually took it to Norway and you see them rowing, you see the actual cast rowing this big Viking ship through the fjords and stuff. And there's this beautiful moment of magic when they're just falling through the stars. And when they land, they all wake up, they fall asleep and they wake up and they're all covered in kind of ground frost, this kind of sparkling frost. And it just looks beautiful and magical. And then they see Asgard kind of as this hill, this kind of collection of kind of like buildings on this, on this hill. And it's all, you know, the, the, the conceptual designer of the film was Alan Lee, who was the conceptual designer of all of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. Ah. The, the world that he creates, the, the way this film looks, the world that it is, is, is so, it's just gorgeous. Like, I, 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 I can't put it any other way. And because this was pre-CGI and it was still the time of practical effects and optical effects, you know, these things are there. You know, you had actual craftsmen sculpting these incredible pillars, you know, which you see the whole way through Valhalla and stuff. And and it's just, uh, I don't know, it feels... it. Like, the last kind of epic that we had was kind of Gladiator, probably, which felt kind of 80% CGI. It didn't feel like those old films where they actually created a historical or fantasy place. You know, I mean, Lord of the Rings do that. Lord of the Rings films are stunning for that. It's rare that you get that kind of actual magic in cinema anymore. And I really, I really feel that in this film. And even the the scene, you know, with the the rainbow bridge and the fact that the yeah. the matte paintings behind the buildings that they've made, they're just so amazingly done. Uh, even when I Googled, I can't remember when I was doing some more reading about the film, and some of the matte paintings in this came up in the various lists of, you know, the the best matte paintings you'll see in film. You know, they're, they're up there with the last sort of scene from Indiana Jones, uh, so Raiders of the Lost Ark, with the, the, the oh, warehouse boxes. yeah and and yeah. you know and they're on lists of films of that the scenes that are more much more remembered than this film and and, and even when i was yeah. looking up the film to try and find not just reviews but if anyone had done going back to the film or anything about it, and there's so little written about it yeah even even like uh, i mean i was looking today at the at the the booklet that comes with the arrow release and that's pretty scant in itself. There's not a lot written about it. There's not a lot that you can kind of find online about the film at all. Some people might want to revisit the film because of the podcast. I know when I talked to Tim about Morons from Outer Space, which is how we got talking because of the book that you'd written about it. And it's amazing that these films that, you know, and again, it's, it's like most films, how hundreds and thousands of people, you know, it's their full-time job they put in these hours to make these films and the money that costs to make them and everything else and and some go on to be huge hits or they get that sort of nostalgia revisiting later down the line and and yet this seems to have just kind of 
disappeared off well, not quite the face of the earth because the earth is isn't flat so i mean this is what i do like you know i write these books the forgotten film club which is about films which have been forgotten like films which are which are there's a lot of right now we're in an age of kind of rediscovery especially with kind of digital and with 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 kind of download and with with blu-ray and stuff and there's a lot of kitsch at the moment there's a lot of people discovering films from the 80s and the 90s and the 70s and holding them up for kind of ridicule and going you know this is like this is a dumb film ha 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 and that's fine because you it feels like history splits films into two camps which is the classic films and the kind of dumb films but what it never goes back to is these middle ground films these films which which are kind of the bread and butter films of the industry which quite often star famous people and might have kind of you know a big director attached to it even but they they didn't stay in the public consciousness for whatever reason or perhaps they didn't succeed for for some you know i mean like eric the viking is a flawed film you know it didn't do well critically and i understand that i i understand all of the criticisms that are leveled against it but that means it joins this kind of strange middle ground like more on some out of space of films which people have just kind of forgotten and for me it's interesting to kind of go back and, and work out not go back and laugh necessarily but go back and kind of go i want to know why this has been forgotten i want to know why people don't know more about this Eric the Viking is a very interesting one for me for that. And I, you know, I, I curse myself because I, so I used to work for the BFI and I still do kind of bits and bobs for them. And I got to interview Terry Jones at one point. Um, it was for a very specific job, which was a, a kind of, a, a kind of regular video that the BFI does called ask the expert where the public can write in and submit questions, which are put to, to whoever the person is. And, and I got to do Terry Jones and I only had kind of 20 minutes with him. So I had to do what the public had asked. You know, I had to put to him the questions that had come through from the public. And I, I'm really angry with myself, obviously, for, for not taking the time. I got him to sign my copy of Eric the Viking. <laughs> treasure forever, especially because he, he, the dedication is, this has been signed by Terry Jones. Which I... Thought, <laughs> really, I when you're at the BFI, there's a certain you take things for granted sometimes that the mon- that most of the pythons come in and out of that place all the time, and you kind of go, yeah, well, you know, I'm sure I'll get another chance at some point. And now, sadly, Terry's in in kind of you know very declining health, and you know, I'm not sure those questions will be answered. I mean, he's done a commentary on on the DVD, but it's not you know it's not what I want to know. Mm. <laughs> it's it's with Forgotten Film Club, I I try and get people not to not to toe the party line. And not to just say the stuff they're used to saying in interviews, but to actually try and understand how they feel about something. And with Terry, you get the feeling that that Eric the Viking was a frustrating experience for him, that he didn't manage to get on screen what he was going for. When we talk about the actors who are in this film, how easy it is now. I mean, I can do it on my phone in two seconds and go on IMDb or go on Wikipedia or go on Google and find... Right, if I'm really interested in what Tim McInerney's done or Jim Carter or Jim Broadbent even, I can go and see, right, what films have they done? And you look at, say, Tim Robbins, for example. You know, he's been in films like The Shawshank Redemption and Mystic River and stuff where people, millions of people have seen and love these films. 
and it wouldn't be difficult especially now and, and there's the whole debate around streaming against physical media where in the click of a couple of buttons you can be watching this film whether it's legally or you can watch it on youtube but it's so easy to go back and find these films if, if you're really keen and it's just strange that this just seems to have not hit that note and while it is i think at the time of recording anyway you can get it digitally through amazon just the fact that these sort of actors have this on their cv and all the people who worked on the film and everything else and and yet varro have gone to the hassle albeit 15 odd years ago of releasing it you know look at some of the big tentpole releases that they do these days and yet it just sort of seems to be sitting there on a sort of perennial ebay almost charity shop shelf and you know you'd hope certainly for their sake that a few more people would see it isn't just a diet monty python film i mean there's huge elements of it and you do half expect eric idle or palin to pop up in a cameo somewhere i'm surprised one of them wasn't for odin but um no it's, it's strange again forgotten films and, and this was the you know part of the the morons from outer space sort of thing where but even then sort of people did remember that i mean i think what's happening right now is interesting because i think what you said about arrow putting it out 15 years ago is is very kind of central to the problem which is that in in that time arrow has become something so much more interesting and if arrow were to put it out now if arrow were to do a kind of bells and whistles blu-ray of this it would finally get its due because we're in this fantastic age of the boutique blu-ray label and maybe indicator you know indicator might be the right label for it but there are there are companies now who film fans trust them and whatever they decide to put out whenever arrow eureka or indicator put out any releases the fact that they're putting it out is enough to make you go oh i'll take another look at that or i'll take a look at that and i feel sad that arrow did this before they were at that point uh, and I, I you know i really hope i mean they could do a blu-ray you know i'd love it if they did a blu-ray because the film deserves to be seen i mean that's the other thing about it is it's not it's not a hack job. It's there are so many elements of this film. The production design is gorgeous. The score is incredible. I mean, it's Neil Innes, you know, from the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, and he's done this gorgeous orchestral score, which is which is not silly. You know, it sets a beautiful kind of mystical and and kind of like a kind of punishing tone to the film. It's gorgeous. I used to when when I was a kid, I had the soundtrack on cassette, you know, and I was like the twelve year old who was walking around like listening to this music and feeling really kind of pumped up by it. It's it's a film that deserves to be seen. It's it's not perfect, but it's there's so much love in that film. You can see how hard people worked on that film and how seriously they took it and how much they care about it, and and that transcends all of its problems. And if they can put Rawhead Rex out on a Blu-ray, they can bloody well do this one as well. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> one thing we we did skip over, which weirdly was the end, when they do enter the halls of Valhalla, Helga's there. Now, she, yeah. I suppose this would be a technicality, did die in battle, albeit perhaps not the way that most of the uh, inhabitants of Valhalla would do. She She was stabbed while there was a battle going on yeah. and this is where we meet the gods it's Thor and Odin they are kids and they have the mentality of kids 
and this is the worship that you put of people and what's to say they're not kids and what's to say that the end of was it men in black where essentially the universe is a toy that <laughs> on a cat's collar or, or whatever it is it's like a marble game or something it is, yeah you know and this is where they say well you've come to valhalla and you're alive so you're we're sentencing you to hell <laughs> it's just that sort of yeah. arbitrary but but that's another you know that's another monty python thing the idea that you that that people could go on this ridiculous voyage this all-consuming kind of voyage which which they were unlikely to have succeed and when they finally get to meet their gods their gods are just a bunch of brattish children you know that's beautiful because that's how gods behave like if you look at the rationale of the universe we live in you know and you, and you start to say ah yes it's a it's an all-powerful all-wise god who allows donald trump to be president <laughs> you know it's childish if there is a god there they might well be just children who knows it's a shame they didn't play it almost like that episode of the simpsons where they go to find the the head of quickie mart and homer gets free questions it's like you're the head of quickie mart <laughs> you really and that's it it's done. <laughs> you may ask me three questions that's great because all i need is one are you really the head of the quickie mart yes really yes you yes I hope this has been enlightening for you. But as they're sentenced to the pit of hell, the our, our religious friend has gone back to the boat, and because in his eye this is all imagination, he doesn't believe in this, therefore it doesn't exist. He goes back to the boat, and crucially, while all the Vikings are in the pit of hell and dying, he plays the third note on the horn, which takes them all home back to um, back to where they're from, and effectively saves their lives really now this was the annoying one of the annoying bits that the dvd i had jumped from them meeting the kids straight to him sitting on the boat playing the third note and i was like what happened there and that's and that's when i had to go to youtube it was strange that this happened and they all just and, and this is the whole point is that they appear on they appear home without the boat thankfully the boat still has a part to play because half dan is there and kidnaps their families and still threatens them the boat appears out of nowhere and crushes them like a giant foot absolutely i hadn't thought of that that's absolutely true the the end of the film isn't them celebrating getting drunk sort of these epic macho scenes of hugging and it's it's them watching the sun come up because they've actually achieved their mission They've actually sort of taken what they set out to do, which essentially was to end violence, but also just to see the sun, which seems very simple when you think about it. Yeah, and it's a beautiful moment, and it's really beautifully scored. It's a really kind of tender piece of score. It's a very strange way to kind of end a film. And like I said, it's, it's very kind of contemplative. But it, for me, that sums the film up. It's such a strange film. Like, you can't, you can't put this film into any group. Like, it's really hard to say what this film is like or what audience it's for you know it's 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 not silly enough to be a python film and it's not serious enough to be an action film it's a little bit of everything it's terry jones you know i mean like it's a guy who who studied history at oxford i believe he was at oxford and kind of fell into comedy and he's a father he's a storyteller like eric the viking created for bill for, for bill jones who did the director's son's cut it was his bedtime stories that terry would make up for him so that's all in there you know you've got the kind of crazy 
stupid annoying comedy and you've got the kind of thrills and adventure you've got the father telling a story and you've got this real darkness i mean you know especially on the blu-ray the bit where they're in valhalla all of the people who they knew suddenly appear they walk out of the darkness and they're surrounded by a crowd of people who 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 live in valhalla who have been killed and it's one of the goriest things you've ever seen. You've got a guy who's had his face cut up with a knife and the knife is left in his face. There's a guy who's been hacked with an axe through his head and down through his whole body. And he's just stood there. You've got a guy with two axes in his head. And it's really gory makeup. It's not even done for laughs. It's really dark and disturbing. You know, that's one of the reasons I love this film. I'd much rather see a curiosity, like a film which doesn't quite work, but which so much thought has been put into, and there's so much going on there, than see a photo-fit blockbuster done by numbers every trope that's ever existed, you know, from the the narrative down to the way it's shot. I love Eric the Viking because it's it's a square peg in a round hole. It's It's a weird film that no one has ever known what to do with. But it's its own thing. It's it's beautiful. And yet this is a film with Thor and Loki and Asgard and Samuel L. Jackson doesn't pop up at the end. Shocking. Thank God. <laughs> that would have made it really weird. It's a rarity in cinema these days. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much for renting or, or bringing your signed copy to the club today. Now, a couple of things. Now, I, before we met and before I started this podcast, I had seen the Elstree 1976 documentary that you made. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, was a big fan of that. But you've also got a book out about your time as a running a video shop. It's called uh, Video Syncratic. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, yeah, that's on Amazon at the moment, and it's uh, it's in the shape of a video. The book is the exact dimensions of a video, and it looks like a video, and it tells the story of the British video rental industry from beginning to end through my eyes. I was there for the whole thing. So when video first started, I was like a little kid. And I hung out in video shops desperately. My mum used to use the video shop like a crash. <laughs> so she could go shopping. I'd just be left there. And as soon as I was old enough, I started working in video shops. And I think I worked out that I worked in about 18 video shops over the years. I've worked in blockbusters and I worked in kind of corporate ones and I worked in very indie ones and I worked in kind of mid type ones. And eventually I started my own video shop and I had two branches of that by the end of it. And I kind of saw the industry out. We, we had these beautiful independent video shops, but the industry tanked while I was living that dream. And, you know, I had to close them down. So you get the, you kind of get my story along, tied up with the entire story of the UK kind of rental, rental industry. And, uh, and it's funny. It's got a foreword by Susie Dent from Countdown. And, uh, and that's available on Amazon, right? absolutely yeah and funny you mentioned blockbuster it seems to have had a bit of a a nostalgia boost of its own recently i think was it deadpool 2 have a a launch they had a pop-up one didn't they that's today i think i think if you go to if you they they, they've done one in shoreditch of course and if you still your original blockbuster card they'll give you a free copy of deadpool 2 and i've got a bag of cut up blockbuster cards i don't know if they'll count but in my video shop, we used to give you a free rental if you cut your blockbuster card up. So we stick on the wall. We have like whole walls full of like blockbuster cut up blockbuster cards. So I've still got those, but I don't know if that'll qualify me for a free copy. I don't know. Sell it open together. And um, weirdly, the while I was waiting for my daughter to go to sleep earlier on, I watched the trailer for Captain Marvel, which has her 
and I, I don't. It's a Marvel thing. I don't really follow it, but she falls from a spaceship through a branch of Blockbuster Video in the trailer. Oh, really? Yeah, it's um, odd. <laughs> the thing, the thing that bothers me is that this nostalgia is happening, and it's happening for fucking Blockbuster, yeah. who were the worst. Like they were scumbags. Like Blockbuster destroyed the fucking film industry. You know, they certainly did in this country. Like, the way they bought DVDs, they targeted independent shops and got them shut down. And then they only stopped new releases. You know, you lost that having in your town video shops, which actually were video libraries where you could get the stuff, everything. So I've got this deep hatred of Blockbuster. And now this bizarre nostalgia for video shops. People are just wanting Blockbuster. I find that so strange, but... I remember the guy coming round with Betamax and VHS tapes in the back of his van. It was there a, you go, uh, video van. North London weirdo who probably didn't have a CRB check and uh, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't be allowed to do it today. There were video shops in. Ha- I mean, I go into this in the book, but there were video shops. One of my friends remembered that there was a video. He was up in Romford. And literally, someone just turned their front room into a video shop, and you just go <laughs> go into people's houses who you didn't know and rent videos from there. Blimey. That's a nicer way of earning a few quid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, John, thank you very much for joining us. It was real fun to talk about <laughs> the film and videos in general. Now, you're on Twitter at Video John, J O N. Yep. As per usual, I'll play out this. Um, podcast with a song that was number one in the uk at the time of the film's release which wow. if i have it written down on my list right it was a uh, ride on time by black box so uh, <laughs> of course it was yeah it's very uh, <laughs> of its time of september 1989 <laughs> thanks rich oh sorry everyone it's, uh, yes. <laughs> john it's been a treat thank you very much thanks so much cheers This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.